You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information on any of the topics you hear today, or to learn more about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Nice to have you with us. My name is Steve Hadley. I'm the chair of the board of directors of the U.S. Institute of Peace, and I'm delighted to welcome you all to this critical discussion on the hinge of history, governance in an emerging new world. I want to extend special welcome and thanks to Secretary George B. Schultz for joining us this afternoon, as well as the leadership and staff of Stanford's Hoover Institution for their partnership in this event. Let me also encourage everyone to follow the conversation on Twitter with hashtag Hinge of History. As many of us have spent the last eight and a half months on Zoom, we have seen how quickly the world can change overnight. And yet while COVID-19 pandemic was a shock to much of the world, Secretary Schultz and his colleagues, many of them joining us here today, were fully aware that this kind of challenge was in our future. In fact, they spent two years rigorously examining the rapid changes and challenging challenges facing us, from technology that's changing faster than at any time in human history, to climate change, nuclear proliferation, mass migration, and the potential for infectious diseases far deadlier than COVID-19. And they focused on the ways in which these challenges are complicating governance around the globe. Last month, the Hoover Institution published their findings in an aptly named volume, A Hinge of History, which distills the analysis of more than 60 original essays by experts and practitioners from around the world and more than 30 roundtables and public panels. They conclude, rightly so, that we cannot meet these changes and challenges without international cooperation and U.S. leadership. And no one exemplifies the leadership qualities needed to seize this moment better than Secretary Schultz. He is one of two people in the history of the United States to have served in four cabinet positions. In his last position as Secretary of State under President Reagan, he played a key role in bringing a successful conclusion to the Cold War and strengthened relationships between the United States and its allies in the Asia Pacific. In 1989, he was awarded the Medal of Freedom, the nation's highest civilian honor, and now serves as the Thomas W. and Susan B. Ford Distinguished Fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution. I should also point out that USIP's Great Hall is named in honor of Secretary Schultz, which serves as a tribute to his tireless efforts in international diplomacy and the peaceful resolution of conflict. We are deeply grateful for his support and partnership with the U.S. Institute of Peace. I have the great privilege of moderating a conversation 
with Secretary Schultz for the next 15 minutes. And then I'll turn it over to Ambassador George Moose to facilitate a conversation with several of the leading collaborators on the hinge of history, which will conclude with a Q&A session with the audience. So without further ado, uh, let's get started. Mr. Secretary, once again, thank you very much for being with us for this session today. Let me begin by asking a basic question. What was the genesis of the Hinge of History project? And what, why do you believe that at this moment in time, we are facing what many have called a historical inflection point? Like many organizations at Hoover, we have bull sessions. And in bull sessions, out of it came this notion, particularly Jim, Timmy and me. But here's the, here's the point. Big changes are afoot. The demography of the world is changing rapidly and radically. Every developed country has low fertility and rising longevity. Their age structure, their population is turned around and almost all are losing working age population rapidly. So there's a huge change. US, Canada, and Australia are of the same demographics. We're not losing working age population because we're immigration countries. Let's hope we can keep it going. But at any rate, there's a gigantic de demographic change taking place that has big implications. The world population will continue to increase because fertility is still high in Africa and a few other countries. But the countries where fertility is high are countries where there isn't much uh, economic outlook and where the climate, the, the climate is changing. I'm sorry, President Trump, it's changed. And you've got drought conditions in many places. And where you have drought, where you have poverty, People don't have anything to eat, so they migrate. So we're going to see migration problems that we need to expect and think about and figure out how to handle them. Then you look at technology. Artificial intelligence has gotten lots of attention, justifiably so. It changes the nature of work. It changes the way we can look into all kinds of things. It's very powerful. But there's also 3D printing. Nobody ever talks about that. But that's a method of making something that makes it possible to make most of the things you want close to where you are. In other words, low-cost contributions to manufacturing are disappearing. And that means that there's going to be a deglobalization take place. That has big implications. Then there's weaponry. There's not only nuclear weapons and things that are get all too present that we've been working on for a long time. But I think of that Iranian drone that flew without detection some distance and took out a Saudi oil facility by hitting it right on the button. That means that any fixed installation anywhere in the world is a target, potentially. Drones are not expensive. And the equipment to put on that makes it explosive is not expensive. 
You don't have to be a big country or even a small country or even a country to get a hold of this stuff. So there's problems that are there. So there's a new world out there that we need to think about and figure out what to do. Now, how to go about it? I think there's a lesson we learned from what the people at the end of World War II did. They were on the hinge of history. People like Ashton and Truman, Marshall, Clayton, they looked back, what did they see? They saw two world wars. First one settled in rather vindictive terms that helped lead to the circuit. They saw the Holocaust. They saw 52 million people were killed in the Second World War. They saw the Great Depression. They saw the currency manipulation and protectionism that aggravated it. And they said, as we could say now, what a crummy world. And then they said, as different from World War I, when World War I, we walked away. They said, we're part of it, whether we like it or not. That's what we have to say today. We're part of this world, whether we like it or not. And they set out to try to bring out something different. They didn't tell people what to do, but they brought them together and organized discussions. Remember, there were 44 countries at Bretton Woods. Out of it came the IMF, the uh, International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, now the World Bank, the General Agreement on Action Trade, versions of World Health. <laughs> Uh, trade organization. So this all was put forward. It was very constructive. The NATO played a huge part in bringing the Cold War to an end. It's a big deal. So this was working from a hinge in history and constructively. And we have to do that now. And what would we do? For example, we know that children growing up now are going to wind up having to change jobs maybe three or four times during their lifetime. And job B is not gonna be like job A. So they need to be able to retrain themselves. And the experience is overwhelming. But if you give me a well-trained K through 12 person, I can retrain that person much more effectively than if the person doesn't have that background. So we have to look at our K through 12 education system in the US and make it better. And we have to look around the world and help people. For instance, in the African problem, if these people are gonna migrate, are reasonably well-educated, that's gonna help them a lot. And they're much more comfortable being received somewhere. So education is a big part of what we're wanting to do and we need to look all around the world about it. Then there's always a tendency with new technology that comes that disrupt, disruptive is trying to suppress it. No, we want to work the other way. We want to encourage it because both artificial intelligence, 3D printing have so much to contribute. And so we want to see them flourish, but we want to deal not only with their pluses, but with their minuses. That's the point, don't stop them, deal with them. And we need to help the world do that. And there, I'm sure there are ways in which we can do and we can do in collaboration with others that will help in all this. So we have a big task ahead and we have to remember we're 
we look at that world out there, we're part of it, whether we like it or not. And we can give leadership and we can gain from interaction. So that's our story. It was a, a big undertaking. And in our book, we talk about, well, how does all this affect China? How does it affect Russia? How does it affect the US? How does it affect Europe? And so on. And we also have a few chapters on particular subjects. Like we have one on health that Lucy Shapiro, who's here, uh, developed and wrote a, with her husband a really stunning paper. And all this work that we did about a year and a half on different subjects are incorporated in the book. And a lot of the sessions were really riveting. We had fun at Uber because we had a little round table place and we'd have these riveting discussions. Then we take the group over to a big hall at Hoover House, holds about 450 people. And we didn't, have, we just put up a sign saying, this is what's gonna happen here if you wanna come, come. And undergraduates poured in, as did people from the community, a lot of Silicon Valley people became advocates of it. Place was full and we had a good time there. So it was a good process very stimulating, and we try to capture it all in this book, A Hedge of History. Can't hear you. Thank you, sir. Um, in the book, you've argued that the United States is remarkably well positioned to ride this wave of change. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Uh, what what assets do we have? What weaknesses do we have as to bring to bear on these significant changes? And why are you optimistic about America's future in this context? We're a resilient country. We've handled change well over the years. We also are the most diverse country in the world. And one of the challenges that everybody will have to face is how you govern over diversity. It's not easy. But I've watched it a couple, of, here are a couple of examples. Way back in 1969, when I was Secretary of Labor, I went to Jerusalem. And for some reason, I was lucky enough that the reigning mayor, Teddy Kollek, took me over for an evening. They took me to one party after another. Everybody having a good time, all different, blasting away, all different. And then he took me back to his office, and all of a sudden I realized Teddy's teaching me something. And he said, you saw all these parties. My job as mayor of Jerusalem is to make Jerusalem a peaceful, beautiful place. And I have all these different places. So I have to let each of them blow off steam the way they want. As long as they do it in a way that doesn't prevent somebody else from doing what they want. Uh, having them all glad to live on what he called the Golden Dome of Jerusalem. So he's managing diversity, let diversity express itself, but putting it under an overall thing. Now my wife, who I brag about all the time, has a similar problem. San Francisco has about 70 consulates. So in every consulate, every country's national day, everybody has a 4th of July like we do. She has a event at City Hall 
She flies that country's flag. She plays their national anthem. She gets a little cookie baked with some symbol in it for them. And that's my way of saying, you're welcome. We recognize you. And we're glad you're living under the creative genius of San Francisco. It's the same idea of recognize the diversity, but put it under a common theme of some kind. So I think that's an example of the diversity that's there. It's something that we've coped with, many others have. But you can look around the world, can't you? And you can see a lot of countries that are not dealing with diversity very well. They fight and they, they don't have figured out how to get along and govern. You've talked about U.S. leadership. Uh, and it is, you've also talked about the importance of helping other nations to rise to the occasion. Can you talk a little bit about why U.S. leadership is important at this juncture and how the United States should lead? Is the United States, it's not the same country as it was at the end of World War II. Do we need to lead somewhat differently than Atchison, Truman, and Eisenhower did in that day? Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, first of all, there's an idea that's been floated around that when we do something out in the world, we're making a gift to other people. That's not the way to look at it. When we want to see a better world, a more secure world, a more peaceful world, a more prosperous world, that's good for us. It isn't just good for them, it's good for us. So we're doing these things in our own interest, not in the interest of somebody else. And so I think that's the way to look at it. I have to ask you this question. It's a little off script, but we have a new president-elect uh, who will hopefully be inaugurated on January 20th. You have long experience. Um, do you have any advice for the president-elect and his team as they take the reins of, of power in Washington here next in January? They will take the reins of power, let's be clear. And uh, I hope they do well. I think they need to realize you have to be tough as well as benign. I remember when I was in Marine Corps boot camp, at the start of World War II. The sergeant handed me my rifle. He said, take good care of this rifle. This is your best friend. And remember one thing, never point this rifle at anybody unless you're willing to pull the trigger. No empty threats. It's too easy to spread threats around and not be able to back them up. So if you're gonna make a threat, if you're gonna make somebody feel you're gonna do something, be sure you're ready to back it up or don't do it. But I think that uh, there's a lot to work with. I wrote a note to Janet Yellen, and I said, Janet, there used to be a picture of Alexander Hamilton on the wall in the Secretary of Treasury's office over the fireplace. I bet it's still there. And when I was there, this portrait had him with his hand out, and you can reach out and shake his hand you get your fingers shaking, shaking hands with Alexander Hamilton. But I got him a lot of mileage out of that picture when I was in office, so do the same. 
Mr. Secretary, it's been an honor to join you for this conversation. We want to thank you for being with us today. And it's now my pleasure to turn the floor over uh, to my friend and, and colleague, the Vice Chair of the USIP Board of Directors, Ambassador George Moose. Thank you, Steve. Um, and a, a sincere thank you, special thank you to my former boss, uh, Secretary Schultz, uh, first for his extraordinary leadership, and, second, and secondly for his extraordinary vision. Uh, and the Hinge of History project is a demonstration of both. It is a, it's a project of truly epic undertaking that brought together scores of preeminent experts from widely ranging backgrounds and disciplines over the course of 30 roundtables and panel discussions and public discussions and personally presided over by Secretary Schultz himself. And it's a great pleasure to be joined today by three of the distinguished experts who, could, who participated in and contributed to that project. Uh, on a personal note, uh, I will say that I was privileged to serve as the moderator for the roundtable on Africa, about which I will uh, say a few words a little later on in our conversation. But each of our panelists has uh, contributed insightful scholarship and deep reflection uh, on uh, the trends that are forcing uh, change in our world uh, and forcing uh, us to rethink um, the, what it means to govern in the 21st century. Changes in the form of mass migration, of technological innovation, to nuclear proliferation and climate change. So joining us today are Dr. James Timby, Annenberg Distinguished Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution, and one of the co-directors of the Hinge of History Project. Jim served as a senior advisor at the State Department until 2016 and played a central role in the negotiation of the INF and START nuclear arms reduction agreements. Dr. Sylvia Giorguli Sosedo, president of uh, the Mexican Society, uh, sorry, president of El Colegio de Mexico, COMEX, and past president of the Mexican Society of Demography. Her research work has involved collaborations with Stanford, Princeton, and Brown universities, and her research focus has been on issues of international migration with an emphasis on migration from Mexico to the United States. Dr. Lucy Shapiro, a senior fellow by courtesy at Stanford's Hoover Institution, a professor in developmental biology at Stanford's School of Medicine and director of Stanford's Beckman Center for Molecular and Genetic Medicine. She specializes in cancer research, genetic engineering, and climate research. And last but not least, we are pleased to be joined by Dr. Chester Cocker, the James R. Schlesinger Professor of Strategic Studies at Georgetown University and a former chair of USIP's Board of Directors. Uh, before we begin, I would like to remind our audience that we hope to have a little time for your questions before we close. You can submit those questions in the chat boxes of your uh, YouTube page or via USIP's Facebook and Twitter accounts. So to begin, I'd like to invite each of our panelists to take about five minutes to describe their work on the Hinge of History Project and how the trends described by Secretary Schultz manifest in their areas of focus. And let me, let me begin with uh, Jim Timothy. <clears throat> Thank you, George. 
Uh, machines used to do what they were programmed to do. Now machines can be trained to learn from examination of lots of data. Applications of machine learning are disrupting industries throughout the economy. For almost every job, some parts can be done better by machines. Nearly every worker is affected in some way in manufacturing, retail, finance, healthcare, even computer programming. And the pace of change continues to be swift. These new technologies have great potential to make us more prosperous, more healthy, and better informed. But they also raise problems. Some workers need new skills to keep up with the evolution of their jobs. Others need training for new occupations. Community colleges, in partnership with industry, have proven successful in providing the skills to support a transition from one job to the next. This is a recurring theme in our project. The transformational changes present big opportunities and big problems, and much will depend on our ability to capture the benefits and mitigate the problems. Social media connect and inform people worldwide, but they spread misinformation and they pose new challenges for governance. Individuals can identify others of the same mind and link up with them to oppose initiatives and the result is gridlock. In the words of one of our we can now stop anything we don't want, but we can't enable anything that we need. Now, 3D printing, as, as Secretary Schultz said, 3D printing and other ways to produce goods near where they'll be used provide many benefits, including <clears throat> more choice, customized products, even unique products, lower costs, reshoring of jobs. Other countries could see disruption of their economies as low-cost labor becomes less of an advantage. Now, these three transformational technologies, artificial intelligence, the information revolution, and new manufacturing methods, these all come together to affect our national security. They've enabled the development of smart, inexpensive, lethal systems that can be produced in large numbers, strike with great precision, and threaten legacy systems. Iran demonstrated the potential of these capabilities in its strike on a Saudi oil field, as uh, Secretary Schultz said. And more recently, Azerbaijan used drones to great effect <clears throat> against Armenia. We may ourselves find we are in uncharted territory in future conflicts, which are likely to involve actions in space and cyberspace, as well as the more familiar land, sea, and air. Information and communications networks will play a crucial role, but they could be disrupted. The side with the most accurate information is likely to prevail. <clears throat> we can expect increased reliance on machine learning to support decision-making. In, in a future conflict involving advanced conventional systems, space, cyberspace, there's potential for un unintended consequences. It's difficult to predict what the outcome could be and events could unfold very quickly. So our national security will depend on taking advantage of these revolutionary technologies while meeting the challenges posed by such technologies in the hands of our adversaries. <clears throat> the nuclear weapons are a unique danger that deserves more attention. Nuclear weapons are particularly worrisome when viewed in the context of advanced conventional weapons and competition in space and, and cyberspace. 
there's potential for that a conventional conflict could escalate to use of nuclear weapons, perhaps through misinformation or miscalculation. And my last point is one, one of our conclusions is that the United States is in a better position than many other countries to succeed, to ride this wave, to take advantage of the opportunities before us. Steve, you, you asked uh, Mr. Schultz about, about this. Let me give you my sort of summary of why this is true. Um, our industries and our universities are at the forefront of innovation in the new technologies. Talented people all of, from all over the world are attracted to the United States. Our tradition of immigration allows us to maintain the size of our workforce, even as we grow older. <clears throat> Workers need new skills for new jobs, but we know how to do that. The biggest problem we see is the shortfall in K-12 education. But overall, the United States is in a better position than most to take advantage of these opportunities and mitigate the problems. Thank you, George. Thank you, Jim. That's an excellent way to get us launched into this complex conversation. But let me now turn to Dr. Sylvia Giorguli Sosedo uh, and ask her if she could talk to us, speak to us about the this important trend of migration and population and what lessons we should draw from the trends that we are seeing now. Thank Dr. you. Yes, yeah. please go ahead. Good afternoon. Uh, well, I, I want to take 20 seconds first to congratulate Mr. Schulz for his 100th birthday. I'm grateful for the invitation to this celebration and for the space to share ideas. I enjoy going through the publication A Hinge of History, and I recognize the great condensation of such diverse discussions that I will hope will trigger further discussion and, ho and hopefully actions. Uh, I'm a demographer and I come from a sending country. So what I will say comes from that perspective and what we discuss in the forums. Uh, first, I, am, I think that one of the issues that uh, the discussion in this uh, greater project has um, has brought in is population dynamics and population change as something that has to be included when we think about global governance. We're talking about changes in uh, the volume, the size of the populations, age structure, the regional dist distribution, which of course interact with other issues such as the environmental ones, with technological change, and with wide socioeconomic and political processes. One of the advantages of demography is that it's more certain than the other trends, for example, economic trends, political trends. So we do know what's gonna happen almost for certain, and that is why we shouldn't include it when we talk about the future. So what do we know now from a global perspective? First, we have a polarized scenarios. We have a group of countries that are rapidly aging, with a shrinking workforce, and we have on the other extreme a group of countries which are young, which still have a growing young population, uh, declining fertility, and, and are delaying this aging process. Um, and the first strong idea to be considered here is when we look at it from a global perspective, there seems to be a demographic complementarity. Of course, that for example, migration is not going to solve all these imbalances and differences in, in demographic issues, and each of the countries will find to will have to find a way to face the demographic challenges. Uh, but 
such these scenarios can anticipate us that uh, there will be a sustained and probably increasing migration, both internal and international, in the years to come, and that therefore we have to consider the great challenge of managing a large-scale migration. Um, I have to say that migration is not good or bad by itself. Its implications for sending countries, for receiving countries, for migrants and their families depend on the management of migration. It depends on the decisions taken by governments in the countries of origin, in the countries of destination, and in the countries in, in uh, into transit countries. Uh, from a regional perspective, I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned from what is going on within our region. And when I uh, refer to our region, I'm talking about the Northern Triangle of Central America, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, Mexico, US, and I will also include Canada in the discussion. And when you look at the region in general, what we find is it's a very highly mobile region. There's a lot of mobility and historical mobility within the region with diverse flows going south to north, but, there, but also very large flows from north to south, return migrations, and more recently, even uh, migration, for example, of uh, US-born um, children to Mexico. We also have a region with historical linkages that have built large binational communities that, through technology, stay connected. And we have a mix of reasons for migrating, a combination of economic reasons, labor-driven migration, environmental reasons, for example, related to climate change, political reasons related to the persistent violence in, uh, in Central America and Mexico. All of these mixed together, and sometimes it's very difficult to differentiate the reasons for migrating for, for, um, um, for one or other reason. They are all mixed together. On the other side, on sending countries, we have a context of large uncertainty for the youth, uncertainty regarding the economic perspectives, the labor perspectives for the youth, uh, uncertainty regarding the violence that affects mainly young male adults, but also women, and prevalence of, uh, for example, high teenage fertility in Mexico, in Guatemala, and Honduras. Um, U.S. will remain as an unquestionable magnet for the migration flows of all the region. And in spite of the decreasing fertility and the decreasing population growth, we can expect a persistent migration with new components that pose new challenges in this discussion around the management of migration. And just to mention one, this large family component that forces us to think about migration differently to the way we thought about it two or three decades ago, mainly based on um, um, labor migration of um, thinking about working age population, but now we have this large family component. Um, just well to 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 short to keep it short and close, around the management of migration is full of paradoxes, challenges. We need creative approaches. And but what we do know from what we have learned along many, many decades is that the migration uh, that the trends that we are seeing today uh, need uh, an approach based on shared responsibilities and with the um, binational, multinational uh, participation. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Jogui. Um, I hope we'll have a chance to talk a little bit about some how Africa is somewhat different in terms of the demography, particularly in terms of the fact that there are a number of countries there where we are not yet seeing that decline in fertility rates that we are seeing in other parts of the world and what 
what the implications of that might be as well. But before I do that, uh, Dr. Shapiro, you authored a report. Oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Dr. Shapiro, um, you uh, uh, authored or co-authored a report for the Hinge of History Project on the causes and the consequences of global warming. And I wonder if you would share with us your principal takeaways from, from that contribution. Yes, I'd be happy to. Uh, I want to stress just at the beginning that this is no ordinary time on our planet. Uh, the Earth is not static. It is constantly changing over millennia. And there have been cataclysmic events that have initiated changes that play out over very long periods of time that in the past have led to climate change and mass extinctions. We are now in the midst of the sixth great mass extinction. What is different now is that the rate of change of the world's ecosystem is extremely rapid in geophysical time. And it is we humans who have produced this cataclysmic event. And it has deep consequences for ongoing global stability. So really, what am I talking about? What does this mean? It means that carbon emissions and consequent changes in global weather patterns, biological systems on all continents and in the seas are shifting as the earth warms and the oceans acidify, wiping out the food chain based in the ocean's coral reefs, and also, importantly, causing a shift in global infectious diseases that is only now being recognized by the international community. These shifts are exacerbated by overpopulation, deforestation, urban crowding, by geopolitical upheavals and displaced populations, by jet travel, global trade, and loss of borders that all lead to the fact that we're living in a global village. When we had our meeting as part of the hinge of history, we predicted that there would be another pandemic, uh, not if, but when. Uh, furthermore, we assumed that it was probably going to be a pandemic influenza flu. Coronavirus, not, not expected. And it was the confluence of creating a strain of extraordinary contagion that has led to a pandemic that's changing the face of everything we're doing. But I want to stress that this is not going to be the first one, it's not gonna be the last one, and that small changes in ambient temperature result in changes in the habitat of viral, fungal, and bacterial pathogens and importantly, the vectors, the mice, the rats, the bats, the mosquitoes that carry them to the human hosts, as well as to our sources of food, our plants and our livestock. We are, this is not in the future, this is now. For the first time, for example, malaria has moved into the highlands of East Africa. Furthermore, we are getting old diseases in new places and new diseases are emerging 
from annual po uh, animal populations which are now displaced. Most of these new diseases, there are no vaccines and no drugs. And even when we have drugs, we are getting resistance to them. Artemisinin, what we use for malaria, resistance is growing rapidly. So as a counterbalance to the damage to our planet, we are in the midst of a technological revolution. The good news, uh, as referred to by Jim Timby, we also now have access to information stored in the instructions, in the DNA of all living organisms, and the ability to effectively manipulate this information, which is actually a monumental breakthrough. Most, most obviously demonstrated recently, within weeks, by the ability to generate vaccines at what has been coined warp speed, which has been simply astonishing. And why has that worked? Because we were able to garner the new technology of being able to work with the DNA inside all organisms, all the instructions, to make a, an entirely new class of vaccines that are going to hopefully turn around the vaccine, the, the incredible destructive pandemic that we're now facing. So let me just conclude by making four points that we in our group thought was essential going forward. And that is one, it is essential that we establish international scientific partnerships. These bugs, these pathogens know no borders. We cannot work on this alone. Number two, we need aggressive pandemic preparedness now, not after yet another thing occurs. In order to do this, we need sophisticated surveillance, international databases, and the sharing of vaccines across all countries of the world. We need three, to build trust. We need our US population to trust their leaders, to listen to scientists who are trying to tell us how to protect ourselves and move forward. We need international trust with colleagues in countries throughout the world. And for all of this, to gain trust and something useful, we need diplomacy. And for this, I turn to George Schultz, who I know of no better scion of exquisite diplomacy. That is what we need now. Thank you, George. And thank you, Dr. Shapiro. Um, one of the key takeaways from what you just said is just a reminder of how these various megatrends are interact colliding with and interacting with, with each other in, in ways that compound their disruptive capability and force. So climate and health and climate and migration. And, um, and so I think one of the benefits of one of the great uh, um, distinctions of the Hindu history was it brought together a range of experts from across these various disciplines and obliged us all to look not only at how the trends in our respective areas are impacting us, but how collectively, how together, how in interactively they are affecting 
the, um, the, the planet, but also our ability to govern the planet, which leads me then logically to our next panelist, Dr. Chester Crocker, another of my former bosses. Um, uh, and Chet has done enormous work on this questions of governance and how we manage to uh, strengthen the institutions of governance to enable us to, to both mitigate the impacts of and magnify the positive impacts of these trends. Chet, would you share some thoughts with us? I'd be happy to, George. Um, let me start, though, by saying that the remarkable uh, aspect of this uh, Hinge of History project is that it's, it's a 30,000-foot look at our future um, uh, led by, uh, by George Schultz, who um, is the most, uh, most remarkable um, uh, statesman who is not a prisoner of ideology and not a prisoner of disciplines. He's a multidisciplinary person who can look um, at all these different variables, and he's got a great appetite for the uh, inputs and the insights of experts like we've already heard, experts on different topics. He has an appetite for their contributions. So what we're seeing in this project is lots and lots of hinges. And now we have to find ways <laughs> to mobilize responses to the, the challenge that those hinges represent. In the African area, we, we actually uh, uh, looked at uh, several different uh, dimensions. We looked at migration and demography, which is, of course, critical. Africa represents today perhaps 15 to 20 percent of the world's population. It'll be 25 to 30 percent by 2050. It'll be 40 percent or possibly 50 or 60 percent by the year 2100, depending on fertility patterns, which are not yet uh, obviously resolved. We don't know uh, how the fertility trends will will vary over time. We do know some of the variables, but we don't know exactly which countries in which subregions uh, will um, empower and liberate women. Uh, so that that's a huge uh, a huge factor. Then we looked uh, at the impact of uh, internet technology and the mobile internet technology, which has actually. Uh, created tremendous opportunities for business and for communication uh, for people who previously had no knowledge of what was going on in the marketplace and they could in instantly pick up their cell phone and figure out what the price should be for corn or wheat or cassava or whatever product in the neighboring country and would know what to do with their with their crops so <clears throat> it's an it's an upside it's a tremendous upside what information technology can bring we looked at trade patterns and there again you have the issue that's quite striking in the african context george which is that most african countries trade primarily with non-african countries and what's needed is a liberation of intra-regional trade so that that more and more countries can can uh, trade and find comparative advantage with each other. Um, <clears throat> we looked, as I mentioned, at uh, at climate as well, and the impact of uh, of climate trends on migration, um, on agriculture. Um, and on urbanization patterns. Africa is rapidly becoming a highly urbanized place. So it's, um, it's, it's important to bear in mind all that we've already heard, including the risk of pandemic disease in Africa's growing burgeoning cities. So uh, that's part of what we looked at. Uh, I did a piece for this project on, uh, on governance trends. And uh, it's fair to say, I think, that um, 
the governance issue in Africa is a very complex one. We have the problem of the big men syndrome where people stay in office for far too long and uh, change the constitution rapidly and uh, try to stay in office as long as they can. We have the, the issue of um, uh, ethnic entrepreneurs who were seeking to govern by manipulating ethnic variables. Uh, there's, there's lots of challenges for African governance, and I could paint a pretty stark picture, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to say that there's some good news in this story, too, which is that there's lots and lots of demand from Africans, young and not so young, women and men, for a, a different future. Uh, and you see it, by the way, African people are demonstrating and taking to the street when they feel the need to, to assert the right to a better future. So I don't think we can just uh, look at governments anymore. We have to look at whole societies um, and figure out where the, where the key vectors are and the key variables. So that's just in a very quick nutshell, George. Thank you very much for the chance to speak. Thank you, Chet, very much for that excellent summary of our three hours of conversation around the roundtable on the, the challenges of Africa. I would add to that, and I think, Chet, you would agree that as we looked at it, and admittedly, we were, we were kind of Africa-centered, but nevertheless, we could make a very strong case that of all of the continents, Africa is the one that is likely to be most heavily impacted by these trends, both separately and in the ways in which they, they, uh, they integrate, they come together and they compound themselves. Uh, and there are a lot of historical reasons for that. We know that this is a continent that uh, even going back pre-colonial times, um, the institutions of governance have not been as fully developed as they have in other parts of the world. That in and of itself poses a challenge. And we also know that uh, some of these trends uh, we can already see uh, are, have already begun to have impacts, uh, the impacts of climate, the impact of climate on migration. You mentioned the movement of, of populations to urban areas, which of course are already under great stress in terms of how they are managing the challenges of delivering services to their very their citizens or even maintaining law and order uh, in, a, in, a, in a safe environment for their citizens. Um, and we've also seen how, for example, these trends of climate uh, are magnifying, reinforcing other trends, such as trends of, of uh, extremism and criminality, where uh, criminal groups and extremist groups are exploiting the disruptions uh, to take advantage uh, of them in order to advance their own uh, either criminal or, or political goals. Simply to say that, um, and I think Chet would agree, that we, the institutions of governance are going to be challenged at every level, at the national level, at the subnational level, um, and at the regional level and the global level. And it also means that given the history here, um, that as one looks at Africa, it is the place where I think we, we recognize it, it, it's going to be the, the demands for outside external assistance and support are going to be even greater than they are in other parts of the world, which again is a challenge for leadership. And going back to what Secretary Schultz said earlier, you know, uh, these are not things we are doing simply because we are seek to be altruistic in the world. They are things we know from history um, affect us in very direct ways um, and therefore require, demand our attention and will certainly demand the attention of our leaders. But with that in mind, Jimmy, let, let me return to you because you talked about technology and you mentioned the roles 
of, uh, of social media and technology and innovation. And, and I wondered if you would share with us, do you, do you view this new digital ecosystem and all this technological innovation, including, of course, the role of social media, as inherently inhospitable to or incompatible with democracy and governance? Uh, what, what can and should leaders do to try to ensure that technology's societal dividends are evenly distributed? Okay, well, uh, thank you again, George. Um, I would not say that democracy is uh, incompatible with social media, but there certainly is a challenge there, and there's a problem uh, to be solved. I mean, democracy requires citizens to make informed choices, you know, when they choose their representatives, when they choose their leaders. And the social, social media companies are not in business to provide the most accurate information to citizens and pre pre to prepare them to make these choices. They're in the business of attracting attention. They're trying to attract your attention so they can sell your attention to advertisers. And it turns out that stories that are sensational but incorrect attract more attention than the less interesting reality. So, but these social media platforms, they're, they're, they're not just big companies anymore. They are a key source of news and information for many people. Uh, and they now help to, to provide different realities to different audiences. And the companies and some, and some in the government as well recognize that this is a problem. Uh, and, you know, not just different opinions, but different facts. Uh, that's, that, that's, a, that, that's a recognized problem. And we're starting to see social media companies labeling and curating some of what gets transmitted, what, what gets amplified in their networks. Governments are addressing this question of their hearings and so forth. So I think we're in the beginning of a path to deal <clears throat> with this problem that, that, you're, uh, that you're talking about. As far as even distribution, that's not something we've addressed in, 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 our, in our project. We've looked mainly at, at the problem of, I mean, before the pandemic, there were more jobs than there were, there were jobs going unfilled, there were people looking for jobs, jobs being disrupted by technology. So we, we focused on, on that transition, on, on improving that safety net, retraining and so forth. But maybe we should talk about the, the question you raised of, uh, of distribution. As Secretary Schultz said, in, in a slightly different way, we're continuing this project. Uh, it now has a national security emphasis, but in, in today's environment, it's hard to find something that's not connected to national security, certainly the pandemic, COVID-19. So this, I think this could be a fair issue to, to, that we could take up in our continuing work. Thank, thank you, Jim. Uh, Dr. Jogouli uh, Sosedo, let me ask you, we are at the moment, uh, we've, the latest statistics from the U U UN High Commission for Refugees would indicate that we have something on the order of 80 million refugees and displaced persons in, in the world, which is uh, a figure that continues to climb. And yet we, which is a really small proportion of our total population, certainly not something that we, uh, on the face of it, could not manage. But yet we were seeing such a, a, a dangerous erosion in the international norms as govern, as govern um, the status of refugees, migrants. And, and we have 
newly emerging categories of migrants. Uh, we have uh, climate migrants, for example. Can you tell us, uh, from your perspective, what we need to be doing at our, uh, our with our global institutions to shore up the uh, support for and the uh, and the protections for people who are obliged to move for for all kinds of different reasons. Yeah, thank you for for the question. I think that one of the the main challenges that we are facing regarding the management of migration is that we have the gaps and the problems that we have not been able to solve in the past, and then we have these new. Um, as you said, new types of migration, new uh, actors participating increasingly in migration flows, such as children. And so we haven't solved the past, and now we are already facing new challenges. Mm -hmm. And I think that a very good example is what's uh, happening with the um, refugee and asylum system in the in the U.S. No, um, I would like to, to, to mention, for example, that a study by Doris Meisner in the Migration Policy Institute which uh, pointed out some years ago the problems, the, um, the practical problems in the management of migration and uh, regarding asylum seeking in the, in the US. So we already have a broken system. You are lagging behind in terms of how to manage large populations with uh, no documentation status. And then you have these new flows and the persistence also of uh, violence-driven award war-driven migration. The other issue is that, well, we have the, the, this document that was signed uh, in 2018, I think, on, on, the, on global, global, global governance compact. migration. The, yes, the compact, the global compact, where the, that the U.S. didn't sign, by the way. Okay. And, it, and I, I do think that in a certain way, we have good instruments and an idea of where it should be going. But the problem is when you put it and when you earth it to the uh, specific national um, national situations. So on, a, on one way, it's clear that countries have uh, the sovereignty and the responsibility of managing what happens at the borders. But on the other side, it's not so clear how to comp compaginate or synchronize the interests of uh, sending countries and receiving countries. And I, I, I would like to say that to the issue that you have raised regarding the, um, the challenges to global governance that in migration specifically, we haven't been able to build a global governance by itself. No? So, uh, and I think that in terms of the governments, the efficiency and the speed to respond to the emerging new situations is, is not what it should be, so it creates larger gaps and greater vulnerabilities. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, a subject worthy of its own seminar and symposium. Um, let me turn, and, and Dr. Shapiro, um, Jim Timby said earlier that he thought the U.S. was well positioned to uh, navigate in these rapidly changing and challenging times. But frankly, as one looks at our handling of the COVID crisis and, and the under-resourcing of so many areas in R&D and science and technology, one might question that optimism. I wonder what you would share with us in terms of uh, your perspective on that. Oh, you're, I think you're still muted, yes. 
I'm always so anxious to give the answer <laughs> that I don't look at my little red button. Uh, I think that the problems that we have are the juxtaposition of governance and what's happening scientifically and in the natural world. And there is a disconnect. And what we desperately need, as I said at the end of my very brief statement, is better communication and diplomacy so that these different worlds that George Schultz helped bring us together in this hinge of history exercise can communicate. Being more specific, the technology that was available not only to us in the United States, but at many other countries, in delving into living organisms and figuring out how to manipulate them has been world-changing. The use of these now requires communication and diplomacy that we don't have right now. And so to me, the greatest realization is that the United States is not an island. We live in a global village and we must learn how to share and learn from other countries and other societies. One of the most important challenges we face is remaining in conversations and data sharing with countries like China. It is not simply to say, I don't trust what they say or do. We have to be in the same tent. We have to share our data and understand how to learn from what they know and what we know so that the extraordinary technologies that are now at hand can in fact be applied. If I may, let me just tell you a tiny bit of good news in all of this bad news about pandemic. And that is the ability to make a vaccine based on a little piece of instruction called mRNA. This is what the hotshot vaccines, which are probably gonna be shot into most of us, has allowed us to do. Because it's something that we can make in the laboratory, a small piece of instruction, the next time we get a new virus that is pandemic quality or epidemic quality, all you need is the sequence of that piece of RNA or DNA. Then in a matter of weeks, you can, man you can figure out how to make a brand new vaccine. You still have to scale, you still have to produce, you still have to distribute. But this is a paradigm shift in how to make vaccines. And it is gonna save us for the next one and the next one and the next one. So this is a rather long-winded answer to your enormous question. <laughs> but uh, hopefully there was a nugget of something good in it. There was more than a nugget and certainly a welcome nugget of good news <laughs> on the horizon as you talk about the new technologies as applied to the development of new medicines. By the way, that was a question that came from the audience, and I'm going to ask another one coming from the audience. And I'm going to put it to Chet, um, and if you don't mind, Chet. And we, we've talked about this before, but what if you could amplify a bit? You know, how did these macro trends of migration, of climate, 
of pandemics, of technological innovation, how do they intersect with the tenets of fragility, as of course we understand them at USIP? Um, in other words, how are these trends exacerbating the underlying drivers of fragility and therefore of conflict? Thank you, George. They intersect in a number of different ways. They, they intersect, for example, by uh, creating a situation in which wealthy entrepreneurs, wealthy individuals in Africa may decide that they would rather park their money in Europe or in the United States or somewhere in Asia. And so the, the total net inflow of foreign assistance, ODA as we call it, official development assistance, is actually about half of what uh, the uh, flight capital is in an average year in Africa. So uh, while we're watching uh, what looks like a good news story, we're also not seeing the under the part that's underneath. It's like, uh, it's like the bottom of the iceberg, which is the flight capital leaving Africa. And that, of course, drains and hollows out uh, governmental institutions and makes it very hard for African governments uh, to uh, deliver the goods to their people, to make opportunities for training and education, uh, to, uh, to open up secondary schooling to, uh, to women, which is a vitally important variable. If you don't have open secondary school education for women, you're not going to see fertility trends change. So these things all intersect in that kind of a pattern. Thank you, and we spent a great deal of time talking about that at our panel. And one of the observations ones you, you made earlier, which is that we need to look not, we, we tend to focus our attention on governance at the national level. And it's quite clear that we're gonna to have to be much more creative and, and broaden our lens as we think about institutions of governance and focus on those where, wherever they may be that seem to be functioning, whether that happens to be at the urban area or at the county area or the provincial area, or at the regional level. Regional. And certainly in, in all of those cases, uh, as uh, Dr. Shapiro said earlier, we, it's going to require global <laughs> leadership as well, because none of these problems are problems that uh, can be solved by um, individual nations acting alone. Well, let me uh, just in there. Please, yes. For a minute, I think one of the uh, things that is quite troubling in a way is the, the tendency of, um, of major authoritarian powers, and I'm thinking of China and Russia and, and Turkey and, and maybe a few others, uh, to export their views of governance uh, into Africa. And that makes it even harder for uh, for African leaders to figure out which models they want to follow and, and which models are going to be truly African models. So the governance models will come from within Africa, but also from outside of Africa. Indeed, and we've seen that um, there's this can be a sort of an imitation or demonstration effect. If people see success in terms of good government, governance and they, uh, there's an inclination to try to emulate it. But that works the other direction as well, sadly. <laughs> we've, we've seen how uh, some autocrats uh, give examples that beget other autocrats, and so something else we ought, ought to be mindful of. <laughs> um, question also from our, our, our audience. Uh, and Jim, it sort of goes to a question you addressed in part before, but it's a bit more explicit. Um, and um, it's a question of, how can these technologies um, be used to advance 
or efforts at peace building and building resilience in societies? And how will the new technology affect the relationships between citizens and the state? Okay, th thank you, George. Can, uh, before I do that, can I just go back to this question? <laughs> in, in your question to Lucy, you sort of yes, please. that I was too optimistic. <laughs> Let me just say that what I meant to say was that our assessment is that we are in a good position. We still have to be smart about it. I mean, when, when all these bright people want to come to the United States, we have to give them visas and let them in and so forth. So, you know, anyway. A point well taken, Jim. Thank you. Um, technologies for peace building. I mean, clearly, uh, social media uh, and other sort of information technologies to connect people. Uh, that clearly is connected to uh, um, peace building. But, but I'd also say that, you know, if, if we're going to, you know, be working on peace building, be, be working on um, international cooperation, I mean, first of all, all of these um, issues that we've discussed today are global. They can all only be solved by international cooperation. So, so you know, working together on solving some of these problems will be helpful. But I think in general, uh, if if we were going to uh, work together for a better, more peaceful world, it, it'd be good from our point of view to emphasize our strengths, our you know, to maintain our technological leadership, to maintain our economic strength, to maintain our, our military strength. If we can do all those things, then I think we'll be in a position to lead. And I think that in, <clears throat> from that position, I think that will be helpful for the sort of peace building that, that your organization is uh, at the forefront of. Thank, thank you, Jim. Thanks very much. Um, Dr. Joe Gulli, so Sato, let me return to you, uh, if I might. Um, you know well, better than all of us, that immigration is a radioactive rail in American politics and culture. And so how would you go about framing for the new leadership, the incoming administration, the argument for um, devoting more attention and perhaps even resources to addressing the issues and the challenges that you identified earlier on? Yeah. Um, so, and, and you're talking about our region, no? Our region, I think in this case, our region. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, well, um, I think that, um, that there are like two, two different levels. One has to do with the principles that guide migration policies, no? And has to do with the integration of human rights and a more humanistic approach to the management of migration as principles. The other has to do with uh, very pragmatic issues. And I think that there are a lot of things that can be done in pragmatic, in, in, in concrete uh, cases or situations that where there might be some debate, but um, I think it's easier to, to solve. No? For example, the case of uh, the dreamers, well, there has been a long discussion in the US, there seems to be certain convergence about the idea of finding a way out to legalize um, migrants that arrived when they were uh, children and that had been in the U.S. for a long time and that which had lost their connection 
their countries of origin. But in spite of this certain convergence, at least in the discourse, the finding the way out of the solution has been slow. No? In terms of, I go again to the case of asylum seeking and refugees, there's a problem with backlogs, with a very long time processing the applications. So there are very specific issues that I think that can be attended and can result in large changes in terms of uh, regularizing and sort of um, of, uh, of uh, finding a way out in the migration system within the US. But the other issue has to do with diplomacy and the relationship with the, with the other sending countries. Now it has been very um, complicated regarding the third safe country, the MPP, uh, also the, the role that sending countries have to play uh, in, in, in terms of their own responsibility as sending countries, but also in terms of the capability of finding a solution that is good for the region as a whole. I do think that finding legal paths, uh, increasing uh, labor visas, for example, uh, fostering the, this um, increase in uh, development in the main region and ascending regions that has to do not only with economic development but also with uh, social co cohesion and political stability are some of the challenges. And when we talk about migration and uh, cooperation for development, we won't see the results in one, two, three, five years. No, we know that it's a long term, but I think that it's sort of pointing out in the right direction. I don't know if I answered your question. Well, it certainly takes us a good ways down the road. And uh, again, another question that we could devote much, much more time to if we had the time to do that. Uh, Dr. Shapiro, let me return to you. And I have another question from the audience. And it relates to, again, to uh, multilateral um, institutions, international channels. And I'm thinking of this particularly in the context of the current COVID crisis, because we have seen uh, alas, uh, our international institutions, WHO in particular, severely stressed and challenged by the um, by not only the science and the, and the magnitude of the pandemic itself, but also by the politics of the pandemic. And um, so the question would be, uh, what are, to be successful, what are the international structures that we need to be thinking about, um, either building or rebuilding? in order to be successful as we face these confront these inevitability as you pointed out earlier of uh, more pandemics to come look i think that one of the big problems we've had is imperfect communication not only between our government and the population here in the united states but between our country and countries throughout the world and that has taken an enormous toll on our ability of, to deal with this disease. I think that we need some structure. Uh, we need the World Health Organization. We need it not politicized as it has been. And what we should be doing is not abandoning it, but working within it to make something that is valuable to all the members of the World Health Organization. Having free data available, and I can't stress this too much, understanding surveillance, 
understanding what pathogens are swirling around the world, understanding and knowing what the projection of infectious people are in Nigeria, in Sweden, in Chicago, in Tokyo. We, all, we need all of that information at once. It can't be a patchwork quilt. And that's what we should be aiming for. And this is not impossible. It's happened before and it has to happen again. So my answer to this is that we need to have the organizations that work, that let us communicate honestly with respect for science and with respect for what we must do to protect humanity at a time when there is enormous disruption in many, many other levels that is go are going to be superimposed by climate change. Thank you. Um, Chet, let me turn back to you. And that's actually, I have a question from our audience. It actually builds on the comment that you made earlier when we were talking about demonstration effects, you know, good examples can beget good examples and vice versa. And the question is, uh, can you identify a successful model for how a country has risen to meet these kinds of challenges by adapting their governance structures and, and improving their governance systems? Yeah, thank you, George. Uh, I think one doesn't only want to look within the African context, but, Certainly not. but um, in, in North Africa, I think I would point out the, the example of Tunisia, which is the only, uh, the only Arab Spring country that actually had a springtime and even a summer. Most of the others who had that experience uh, rapidly descended into winter. Um, uh, Morocco has also done a pretty good job of trying to be a modernized monarchy and, and uh, making it possible for the currents of Islam to become constructive uh, in the country and not, uh, not tear the, the country apart. Elsewhere in, in Africa, I think I can point to a few success stories that uh, I think have been pretty durable with multiple alternations of power, such yeah. as a country you know far better than I do, George, and that's Senegal in West Africa, um, which, which has managed uh, its own challenges of climate and migration and, and so forth, but it's done it well. Um, <clears throat> Ghana has been quite successful in this regard as well. Down in Southern Africa, Botswana is the example people always point to of adaptation and the building together of traditional uh, ethnic uh, norms and institutions into a modern polity. Um, George, while I have the floor, I, yes, please. I, I can't refrain from pointing out that we've all been talking about diplomacy one way or the other, <laughs> and, <laughs> and the spark plug for this entire conversation is, uh, is listening to us opine here. Um, George Schultz once remarked to his colleagues, um, uh, Mr. Secretary, you said to us that, that good diplomacy is like gardening. <laughs> you do it all the time because you have to keep maintaining relationships. So we have the gardening model. We also have other models. We have the need to occasionally build uh, new institutions the, uh, to come up with answers to new problems as they arise or strengthen institutions. So maybe this current crisis might lead to 
reinvigorating the WHO, who knows? Um, in my view, we have to think more and more about uh, having concerts of like-minded work together on problems. Um, and so concert diplomacy could become something of the, the future model. But the bottom line is we need more diplomacy. Thanks, Chet. Um, I, I'm not going to, I'd like to actually invite a non-panelist to uh, opine on some of this as well, and that's uh, our chair, Steve Hadley. But I'll, I'll yeah. give you a couple of minutes, Steve, to think about that. But I would welcome your thoughts about, as you would listen to this conversation, because you are always very astute at drawing out themes and threads. So let me turn back to you in just a minute. But indeed, uh, Chet, to your point, we had a couple of questions. Uh, from our audience about precisely about this, the issues of diplomacy. Uh, where does diplomacy fit in to this new challenging agenda that has been described to us in the hinge of, uh, the hinge of history? Uh, is diplomacy, uh, as we have thought about it, all of us ancient ones thought about it in the past, or is, is diplomacy itself going to have to change and adapt in order to enable us uh, to respond to and meet these challenges. And indeed, in particular, specifically, how has the COVID crisis affected our ability to pursue diplomacy in the traditional sense of that word? And Jim, I'm gonna throw that one to you in the first instance. To Jim? Jim, Jim you're still muted. <laughs> So I think now most of us have now made the same mistake. We all do. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me start out and uh, take the, the diplomacy question a little more, a little more broadly. I mean, we haven't talked about uh, China and Russia here, and I think you know when you talk diplomacy, that's part of it as well. Um, and as we've discovered in our project, both of these countries face real problems. <laughs> I mean, China. As a working age, their working age population has peaked, they've become a steady decline. They're not gonna sustain the economic growth they've had in the past. They have environmental challenges. You know, if we, if we maintain our own strengths, our leading position in technology, our economic military, our partnership with allies and friends, we can be in a position to work with China on some of our differences. You know, we're, we're seeking more reciprocity, more level playing field, uh, and trade and investment, rules of the road in space and in, in cyberspace and, and so forth. We, we think, I mean, I'm speaking now of the, the, the collective, we think we could sit down with China with a list of concerns and seek to resolve some of them and, and see some, some areas where we can cooperate, maybe some areas uh, that will remain competitive, but, but we can sit down with some some prospect of success. And the same, the same is is, is true with Russia. So we think that um, through this understanding of of uh, how these transformational uh, changes are affecting not only us but other countries. I mentioned big countries, but they're affecting you know middle-sized and small countries as well. <clears throat> This understanding that we're sort of we're all facing some similar problems could be conducive to diplomatic solutions. Thank you, Jim. Thanks very much, Steve. Uh, I know it's a bit unfair, but might I just call on you to uh, opine a bit on what you've been hearing 
in the course of this conversation and um, what you take away from it and, and what you hope we may make of it going forward. Yeah, I, I would like to make a, oh, a general... Please, no, go, go ahead. Oh, you don't, you were talking to me or not? No, I was not, but go ahead, uh, make, a, make a comment and then, and then we'll move on. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I, okay. I, I think I heard Sylvia. Now, uh, that's the a general comment is, uh, well, you have mentioned the challenges to institutions yes. and, and for global governments. I, from my perspective, and not only within, uh, within my field, there's this lack of uh, efficiency and the speed of governments to respond. And, uh, and there's also, for example, the, the role of multilateral organizations that uh, I have, a, I, I, I would like to discuss or to, to see more discussion about how they are also adapting to this new context and and then a new probably new ways of, of making uh, or doing uh, diplomacy, and uh, and uh, I agree with uh, Lucy about the importance of having more diplomacy, scientific diplomacy, but I also would like to know why. Uh, why we have now are facing now this disconnection between empirically based solid scientific knowledge and public policies. If there was a, a greater communication before, why are we finding these obstacles now, not only in the U.S. but in the global in the global context? So um, I'm sorry that I, I, I interrupted my, my my apologies. We're not sorry at all that you injected that, that theme because it is, it's a fundamental question, isn't it? I mean, we, we are seeing not only here, but all around the world, this increasing disconnect between the, the if you will, the rational scientific conversations that uh, we are accustomed to having and the, this growth of anti-epistemic communities um, that is threatening that whole system and that whole rationale. We, we are sort of at the um, end of our time here, but I did want to give uh, our chairman, Steve Headley, an opportunity to share any thoughts he might have with us before we close in. Well, this has been a terrific program and the work that you've done is fabulous. And I'm really looking forward to this book. It, it, I've got some things that are both above it and below it in some sense. Um, we talked about the things that are needed internationally um, in order to meet these challenges. And we talked about it in terms of organization, but I think it's also, a, 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 we have to talk about the international political culture because do the things that Lucy Shapiro talked about, you gotta have transparency. You gotta have a, an honest sharing of data. Uh, you, you know, there, there's a lot of things about the in, in the international political culture that you need in order for us to do these things correctly. And we have now a competition between an authoritarian state capitalism model, which is not particularly transparent, is not particularly uh, sharing in terms of uh, candid assessments uh, of what's going on that's represented by the Chinese. And of course, the model that we have on Western values. Those are now in collision. And in some sense, how that competition comes out matters if we're gonna have the right kind of international culture to deal with these problems, which brings us back to the United States and to the underpinnings of all this. Um, yes, we have a lot of advantages to uh, in, in confronting this new world. As Jim said, though, we've got to do some things. We've got to invest in infrastructure, in education, in technology, 
If we don't do those things, we won't be well positioned in this, which brings us then to the American people. We're going to have to build support for this among American people. And a lot of people already are saturated about the pace of change that's going on in society. And we're basically talking about get ready. There's going to be a lot more. And really, then, this becomes a challenge of governance here at home. How do we bring the American people as a, a whole behind this enormous project we're talking about and not have it leave some people behind or contribute to either even greater divisions? We've got to make this system work. We've got to, you know, we've got to make our system of governance perform. We've got to explain to people these challenges. We've got to show that our government can actually come together and have policies that address them, make the decisions for infrastructure and technology and all the rest that we need in order to succeed. Uh, and we need to then restore confidence of the American people that we actually can handle the challenges coming forward and then make our system work so that we once again become a model that countries want to emulate and we, in the end of the day, can win this ideological competition with China about what is the model who works. And it's important if we're going to, to win that, because that's the only way I think we're going to create the kind of international culture that we're going to need to do all the things that your panel has talked about. So, George, you know, that's a long way around the barn, but it shows the scale of what really needs to be done in so many arenas if we're going to if we are going to uh, make good on what this work suggests it needs to happen if the world's going to deal with these challenges thanks george well thanks steve i'm so glad i asked you to comment and, and i think you put your finger on the quintessential challenge for american leadership right now which is to rebuild that trust in those relationships with the american people that enable us then to uh, to do to perform the kind of leadership role that we are being called upon to play internationally. So uh, we have exhausted my time, and I'm sure that in a minute they're going to cut us all off. So let me begin by thanking um, all of our panelists and our participants for what has been a fascinating conversation. And needless to say, this is a discussion that barely skims the surface of that vast body of research that was brought together in the Hinge of History project. But we hope that it will at least whet the appetite of our audience and, and lead them to go and search for more. Uh, and before we close, let me once again uh, acknowledge and thank Secretary Schultz for his bold and visionary leadership in conceiving and of this project and directing it, and for his distinguished record of service to our nation and for his greatly valued support for the U.S. Institute of Peace. I want to acknowledge um, and thank the staffs of both USIP and the Hoover Institution for their indispensable role in putting this event together. Uh, we've uh, heard today, um, what we've heard today underscores uh, how, just how rapidly our, our world is changing and the shifting global demographics, migration patterns, climate change, technology innovations um, that are producing enormous socioeconomic and geopolitical shifts and disruptions, particularly I would argue in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. So this hinge of history project is not only, uh, not only about our understanding of those forces, but importantly, as George Schultz conceived it, about the choices that leaders at all levels will need to make if we are to manage and to harness those forces. And the project brings to mind 
um, great historical figures of the past who, when faced with uh, generation-defining challenges, rose to meet the moment. And if there's one clear message from this project, it is that we are facing such a moment now where the choices that we make will, be, will have profound implications for generations to come. Um, I, I, for one, remain hopeful that our leaders will rise to meet this moment, but I'm also mindful, as Jim put it, that we will require uh, truly extraordinary leadership and that there is much work to be done and great commitment to international cooperation to ensure that those benefits are in fact realized. Um, we look forward um, to, uh, in fact, we believe uh, that the Hinge of History Project can and will become an indispensable resource for academics, for researchers, for policymakers, and all who seek to navigate these complex challenges and changes in these daunting times. And we thank you all again for, your, for joining us for this important discussion. And our thanks again for George Schultz for once again leading us in the right direction. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org slash podcasts. Thank you.